In 2019, Rachel Lynch was announced as the FIH Goalkeeper of the Year. A just reward after some fantastic performances and a growing reputation as one of the very best in the game in a shootout situation. It's not been a smooth ascendancy though, and in this candid chat with Tom Winter, you'll learn about some selection and coaching challenges Rachel's had to manage. Welcome to the Camberwell Hockey Podcast. Outside hockey, you'll hear about Rachel's long-standing work as an ambassador with the RUOK charity, working in the area of suicide prevention. RUOK's vision is a world where we're all connected and are protected from suicide. Their mission is to inspire and empower everyone to meaningfully connect with people around them and support anyone struggling with life. You can read more on the website at ruok.org.au. You can follow Rachel on Twitter at rachelinch27 and find out more about her and her new Stomp Goalkeeping Training Initiative on her site, rachelinch.com.au. Thanks, Rachel, for your time and best of luck for Tokyo 2021. Here's Tom. Okay, Tom Winter here with another episode of the Campbell Hockey Podcast. Uh, today's guest is a registered nurse who's been working through the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, she's a strong mental health advocate, having done a power of work with Are You OK Day, uh, a small business owner who's also giving back to the grassroots of hockey, and she happens to be a two-time Commonwealth Games gold medalist, an Olympian, the most capped hockey ruse goalkeeper in history, and the current reigning FIH Women's Goalkeeper of the Year. Rachel Lynch, welcome and thanks for giving us some time. Hey Tom, how's it going? Going pretty well. Um, as we were just saying offline, things are probably a little bit better for you over in Perth. Sunny and going for endless activities outside than they are here in Melbourne, but um, hopefully an hour of chatting will just be able to pass a little bit of time. <laughs> yeah, actually, you're holding up my day because I'd like to be outside. It's quite hot today, so I was going to go to the beach for a few hours and then I'm heading out for lunch. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll make it quick so you can get back to life outside. <laughs> Um, no, no, it's, look, it's all good. I'm happy to be here. Um, as I did just touch on, your obviously your hockey credentials speak for themselves and we'll definitely get into that being that this is a hockey podcast, but I thought we'd also touch on all of the stuff that you've achieved and done outside of the field of play. Um, probably most prevalent just at the moment this year is your work as a nurse. Do you want to just tell us what type of nursing you do and how that's looked over the last six to 12 months? Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's actually changed quite a lot. My my situation has evolved reasonably rapidly during COVID, which, you know, I'm not alone. A lot of people have, have put themselves into different situations, some by choice, others not. Um, so I've worked as a neuro rehab nurse for the last 10 years. I've uh, been on the same ward that whole time. I studied in Melbourne, but then um, got a job over here as a graduate. I was moving over anyway for hockey. So I guess essentially started my nursing career in Perth and I love it. I absolutely love it. So neuro rehab is mostly stroke and MS. Um, so we have long, longer term patients. They'll have, have a stroke, go to the acute ward um, and then come to us for rehab. So it's worked in really well. I, I only work one day a week normally um, and being rehab, I think I really enjoy the patient interaction and the fact that, you know, I can go away for a couple of weeks and come back and still have the same people there. So, um, yeah, I, I really love it, but uh, things have changed a lot. So when COVID happened, we stopped hockey. 
um, as everyone did. And um, I had a few weeks where I was trying to get extra shifts. You know, I wasn't doing anything else and I had, I guess, this deep desire to help out. So I uh, went in to um, offer my services, if you like. I also applied for COVID clinic at my hospital and at another one. But the way um, our health system reacted was in such a way that um, you know, we had to close wards, we were anticipating um, the greater need in our intensive care departments and all of these sort of changes meant that there was actually a lot of nurses who were looking for work. So um, I thought my ward would snap me up but um, everyone sort of stepped up and took on, on, on their role which meant that I couldn't get any shifts. So I had a few weeks just enjoying myself, you know, walking, riding, um, enjoying the ISO life and then just working a couple of days a week. And then eventually I decided that um, I felt like I was wasting my time a little bit. So I ended up applying for a um, job with a mining company um, doing their COVID testing and I've been working full time ever since. So smashing out sort of 50 to 60 hour weeks doing that. Um, and yeah, basically just COVID testing all of our uh, mine site workers so we can keep the mines open in WA. Amazing. Wow. That's um, obviously a pretty massive shift. And again, this is something we'll definitely touch on later, but a huge shift from what you would have hoped to be doing right about now compared to uh, what you are doing and what you <laughs> have been doing. But do you think that your nursing and your ability to balance these things has helped this year? Um, obviously, having the mental health work to fall back on as well as the nursing to keep you going. Do you think that's helped you once, obviously, COVID hit, the Olympics got postponed and so that so did the hockey program do you think having those things has helped you kind of keep going this year where others might have stalled a little bit a hundred percent I mean uh, I guess there's certain skills involved in that that I pride myself on and have spent a lot of time building um, you know around the life balance and mental health and um, self-care and all of those things but I think the the main thing that I've noticed is when uh, the Olympics got postponed and sport got cancelled uh the people that really struggled were the ones that only did sport. So, um, you know, we've known for many years and something that I'm really passionate about is having that balance uh, is so important for your perspective, but also sport is, is a uh, finite thing. Like eventually either an injury, retirement, it's going to stop. And for everyone, it stopped very abruptly. And I noticed that, you know, all we saw in the media was the footballers and the, the high profile athletes that are just like, you know, whinging about it all and can't cope and they've lost their money and all of this sort of stuff. Whereas the Olympic athletes were just like, right, oh, carry on. You know, I'll pick up some extra units at uni or I'll um, grab another job or I'll work more hours. Or it was just like, you know, no worries, we can cope with this. And obviously there was disappointment around, but majority of athletes, um, certainly in our hockey program, yep, okay, we just, we just um, do what we need to do. And um, in fact, it's for most, they've just been able to fall back into um, their, their other life, if you like. And, you know, we almost lost all of our money and our funding for a little period there. But it's like, all right, we'll just go, go and get a job and, and use the skills you have. So it was really interesting to see. But certainly I felt really proud of the um, Olympic sports in how they handled themselves throughout that time. Obviously, knowing some of the hockey athletes that a lot of the hockey players around do, I think I completely agree with you in the way that you all responded has been so impressive. And for yourself, obviously, falling back on nursing has been quite good because it's kept you going. And um, one of the things I left out of the intro was obviously you're, keen, you're a keen cyclist and 
those who are on Strava have seen that you've just been rolling out the miles pretty consistently. So obviously uh, you would have kind of prepared yourself for this year to be quite a big year in your hockey life. Um, have you had a bit of a mental break from the game and, and do you think that's helped you to kind of reload for what will now be Tokyo 2021? Uh, yeah, that was pretty key for me. Um, it was the break I was anticipating having after the Olympics, but instead we had it before. And um, yeah, being an old athlete, I was you know planning for maybe a key, making a pretty key decision. And not that I've really wanted to retire or anything like that. I haven't felt that for um, well ever. But uh, I think having that mental break maybe refreshed me a little bit in a sense that I stepped away from um, the 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 challenging parts of elite sport and uh, they're the thing, like I don't miss, it's not the hockey, um, the training, the playing, the girls, they're not the things that force you into retirement. Um, usually it can be, you know, your body or uh, the lifestyle or um, sometimes the politics, as you would know, Tom. Uh, so to be removed from that a little bit was great. You know, just focus on my riding. I loved riding. That was the main form of exercise for me for a little bit there. Um, and, um, basically training on a schedule that I got to dictate, which we never get to do. So, um, yeah, that was really refreshing. You touched on schedule there and it was probably one of the the other points I was interested in. You've obviously had quite a long career now, um, as a hockey roo. How did you balance or did you find it harder at the start of your working life as a nurse to balance being a nurse and being a hockey player? And how have you, how did you do that over such a long time? To be perfectly honest, the balance part of it is fine. I'm a pretty organised person and I am choosing to do that. So you kind of take the um, take it on as a, well, as literally as a personal challenge. How can I manage to fit all of those things into my day? The most challenging part of it all has been the conversations with coaches. Uh, my whole career, um, when I first started, Frank Murray was our coach and he was all about having the life balance so we trained outside of work hours so when I first moved here I was a full-time nurse I was graduate and I was working full-time so uh, other than COVID that's the only time I've done that in my career and over time I had to drop my hours because I was you know pretty exhausted and as a young nurse as well you know you've just got a lot going through your head you're trying to learn so many things and I remember when I was actually nursing, it was fine because I was on my feet. I was, you know, doing physical work. But because I was new, I had a lot of time where I'd be pulled aside by our staff development nurse and we'd sit down and talk through stuff. And I couldn't keep my eyes open as soon as I sat down because, you know, I'd probably been up since 4.30 that morning and then still doing a full full shift. So it was hard. But later on in my career, I dropped my hours right down. But I've always had, um, I guess, my commitment questioned because I wanted to do other things and not just fully focus on hockey and it's it's probably been one of my biggest frustrations in my whole career that I felt like I've always had to try and prove that it actually makes me a better hockey player like not I'm not even going to enter the discussion of making me a better person and a better citizen and um, trying to do the right thing and you know actually earn a living and all of those realities too I don't even touch on that which you know should be the topics of conversation but they're not it's purely like I honestly believe it makes me play better and it's been um, a painful journey to try and prove that. But, I, I, well, I think I'm there now. I'm definitely there now. I think I've, um, I've proven it with the Olympic years. You know, the two Olympics that I missed out on um, were both years where we weren't allowed to work or study and then 
um, when Rio came around, I said, well, I'm not doing that again. It doesn't work for me. And I begged the coach at the time to let me work just one day a week. And I honestly believe that's the reason I got picked because I had those eight hours every week where I could go and think about someone other than myself and not get caught up in all the, you know, the things that come along with being an elite athlete and selection and Olympics. I could actually go and look after people who are going through something that is so much more important uh, than sport. So I, I need that and it makes me um, perform at my best. So I think finally um, people actually believe me. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, that's an awesome point and it was actually something I was going to ask you and it was probably in a lighthearted conversation going to be one of the harder things to touch on was how did you get past the disappointment of obviously missing out twice um, but I think that shows incredible maturity as an athlete and a person to kind of make that stand and say well no I want to give it my best shot at being becoming an Olympian and my best shot is to have a focus outside of hockey because Obviously, it does become pretty all-encompassing, particularly as the big events near. Um, and I think that also leads in, I imagine, to the other work you do with Are You OK? Um, and being able to be mentally healthy as well as physically healthy. Um, just for those who are not completely across Are You OK? Do you want to give us a bit of a rundown of what that is and then how you got involved with them? Yeah, I'd love to. I hadn't heard of Are You OK when I first joined them, maybe seven or eight years ago, I think it was. Um, had a friend that was working there and he introduced me to uh, the company and they were looking for an ambassador and I, I loved the concept, so jumped on board naturally straight away. Uh, Are You OK is a suicide prevention strategy. Um, they're, a, you know, they're a charity that um, began many, many years ago. Uh, the story... And it's you can actually watch it online on Australian Story. I think if um, I'd, I'd highly recommend people um, search it and, and watch it. It's about a half an hour episode of um, the story of this guy who he lost his father to suicide, and um, so he, he and and he admits that his his dad was not very good at talking about things. So him and his wife started um, Are You Okay? and and a few others involved and. They put this strategy together where it's basically just getting people to talk to each other and hopefully prevent something small becoming something big and, you know, becoming a mental illness or, or suicide. And then, um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to spo spoil the story because I'd love for people to have a look, but they then went through some really serious challenges as a family. So um, ironically enough for, for the wife and the kids, Are You OK became um, a bit of a legacy and, and something that they could hold on to while they were going through these challenges. So, um, yeah, I think it's it, it's applicable to any anyone, any setting. You know, you don't need to be qualified to, to implement what Are You OK do. It's just about asking people if they're OK, checking in on each other, looking after yourself, um, referring if you need and, and following up. So it's um, simple messaging and that's why I like it. Yeah, amazing. Um, and I know that you've obviously been working pretty closely with them since you started um, and you've done a few fairly big events. I know that one of them was a big bike ride um, that was with yourself and a couple of other hockey roos and some other footy players, I think. Um, what have been some of your highlights with them and is there anything or was there anything planned for this year that maybe has been pushed back a little bit? My Are You OK activity this morning was um, Are You OK this year have had um, Kit Kat branded Kit Kats so it says Kit Kat for a chit chat. So I just walked into the city and dropped dropped off some Kit Kats, Are You OK Kit Kats to Laura Bard and Chrissy Bates 
um, Sophie Taylor and Nicola Hammond because they're all staying in the um, mandatory quarantine in the city uh, in Perth here. So I thought, oh, they might need a little bit of a pick-me-up. So I went and visited. Well, I didn't visit them. I dropped it off. Um, getting sidetracked. Look, so <laughs> many events. I've um, I've absolutely loved representing Are You OK? and then also including their messaging in some of my own sort of personal um, talks and things. Uh, Kokoda Trail was the first one that I did with Ash Nelson, with a teammate and a good friend of mine. We raised about 30 grand and then the two of us walked to Kokoda just, just in a private group. So we had our guides and our porters and us. That was it. Really incredible experience. We did absolutely no training whatsoever because we went two weeks after returning from the Com Games, so we couldn't. Um, but a really good challenge. Then we did the bike ride, which, Tom, I'm sure you would have loved to come on. <laughs> yeah, would have, would have loved that. <laughs> We'll, we'll we'll plan another one, but um, yeah, the the bike ride was awesome. But you know, the reason we do them, it's obviously raising money is fantastic, but it's about spreading a message. So when we rode to Albany, um, you can get there, you know, reasonably directly. But we actually went town to town to town. We ran clinics, we did talks, we went to farming communities, um, and spoke about the importance of Are You Okay. So it's more around the messaging and the awareness. And um, yeah, even more recently, I've done a lot of work up on mine sites. So now I work in the mining world. It's um, it's fallen into place nicely. But Ash and I used to go up to various mine sites, Rio Tinto and BHP, and some of those companies, and we literally would just get put on a on a truck or a digger, you know, those massive machines, and you just spend half an hour with that person, and you know they spend twelve hours of their day um, for two weeks straight, usually sitting on a truck by themselves. So it's a pretty isolating job, um, and in, you know, tough environment. And we just sit there and talk to them and. We're not there as a counsellor, but it's amazing how quickly people would open up to you. And um, some of the stories we heard, we heard were just incredible. And building that connection with a stranger purely by just being there and listening to them, um, and that's what I love about the um, yeah. That's what I love about Are You Okay? Yeah, and I think um, some of those things are particularly relevant this year with everyone going through pretty hard times. And um, you know, we would always encourage people and just to reach out for a chat with anyone really and I know that at Campbell we've recently uh, started mental health groups and we've done training and stuff and, and I think it's something that as a club we're striving to get better at and I can say with confidence that a lot more people are comfortable talking now than what they probably were you know, a few years ago which is, which is fantastic and um, some of the work that people like yourself are doing is you know, it'll never go unnoticed because it just helps so much in such a wide variety of places. So, um, yeah, I think that string to your bow is, is a really great one. Um, and then you've obviously just just started a, a business, Stomp Goalkeeping. Um, what sort of prompted that? Was that just to give back or, or was there a bit more to it? I've, I've always loved coaching goalies. Um, funnily enough, I've, I've played hockey like nearly my whole life. I've never umpired a single game and I've never coached a team before. Um, so I feel I probably need to give back in another area, <laughs> which is which is the goalies. Um, I just really enjoy the specialist side of it. Um, so started coaching oh, like years and years ago. I've always done it um, alongside my my playing career, but it's really challenging to find the time. And obviously I'm in in Perth, so that makes it even harder. So always love the face-to-face coaching. Goalkeeping is such a niche and around Australia you could probably count on one hand the amount of really qualified coaches we have. So there's a huge need for it. Um, and in fact, it was actually my brother who gave me the idea to go online and he's he's the, um, the brains of the business um, and 
also all of the tech. So he's built my website for me. He um, he helped come up with the, I guess, the strategy behind the company. And the idea being that uh, we, well, I can't get out to all of these keepers and a lot of them are in, you know, more rural and remote parts of Australia. Um, we know that hockey is really strong in the country towns of Australia. So this was a way to be able to get out to them, provide, um, I guess, content, skills, drills, information, all the things that are in my head and um, I've learned across my career, I wanted to be able to share that. So we started filming these videos, we'd film them at the start of the year and then put packages together where um, you as a young goalkeeper, or doesn't matter any age, we have, we have all ages, uh, you can watch these videos, you can learn about a particular skill, I provide a drill, most of the drills you can either do by yourself or with mum, dad, brother, sister, teammate, anyone, or your coach, ideally. But um, they're simple enough that you can do them as a sort of, I suppose, a self-directed learning. So it's a reality. You're not going to have a coach. Your field or your team coach is probably not going to have time to look after you. So you've got to go and do it yourself. So I give them all the tools and um, it allows them to go and do that. And it's been really successful. I'm really happy. And certainly at a time like this, um, it's gone pretty crazy because there's all these people either in isolation or um, hockey stopped. So I can at least look after the goalies during this time. Yeah, terrific. And and I think that obviously people with profile, goalkeepers with profiles like yourself, to then be so accessible to younger goalkeepers or older goalkeepers, right? Like for you to be able to provide tips to that goalkeeper who's 23, 24 and wants to take the next step in their hockey. Um, are you having much cut through with those sorts of goalkeepers, the older ones, or are you finding that it's predominantly the, the young kids who want to sort of tap into your knowledge? Actually, my most engaged audience are the older ones. Um, I, I, I did a, a Zoom chat or a couple of um, you know Facebook Live and Zoom chats and that during COVID um, with all the stock crew, and it's really nice. So the um, you know the kids will jump on, but they get a little bit nervous, and maybe mum or dad's sitting next to them, like giving them a little bit of a nudge to ask a question. But the old, older goalkeepers, you know, from I guess twenty all the way up to to seventy. Um, and, and, and older, I've done a lot of coaching with the veterans and they're really engaged. They want to ask questions. Um, you know, their, their training is modified, but as we know, hockey is such a wonderful sport like that, that any age can do it. You know, uh, usually at the older age group, they have to go a little bit slower and ice for a little bit longer after the game. Um, that's probably you and me still now, Tom, but, um, the, um, the older goalies, they love it, and um, I'm more than happy to be a resource for them and help them adapt their training. You know, maybe they can't do the same diving, but they could do something else, and I'll help help them work through that. So um, I really, really enjoy engaging with, with with that crew. Yeah, awesome. Well, hopefully, it, and I'm sure it will continue to, to grow as uh, the word gets out a little bit more. Um, then I guess going to the, the playing side a little bit more for you, um, where – where did your hockey start? And, I mean, it might seem a silly question, but why goalkeeping? How did you end up in the pads? <laughs> uh, it wasn't really my choice, actually. Um, I'll, I'll answer both questions at once. Uh, as a kid, played heaps of sports. I was your typical tomboy. Um, grew up with an older brother uh, in Warrandyte, so we had a couple of acres. And down the front uh, on, on a pretty quiet street and also our property was was our sporting field for, for any sport. Didn't matter what it was. Uh, I think tennis was probably the first sort of organized sport that I did, but basketball, baseball, softball, soccer, football, 
anything you can think of, I played it. Actually, I never played netball, funnily enough, um, probably because my brother never played it, so why would I? But um, my PE teacher in, or my sports teacher in grade six encouraged me to get into different sports, and uh, we played heaps at school, but I tried out for the state team, so the VPSSA, the primary schools, um, as a 12-year-old. Um, basketball, tried out for basketball, which was my sport at the time. I was playing for the Warrandyte Redbacks. And um, uh, so tried out for the basketball, soccer, uh, rugby, and hockey. So that were the four. Um, the basketball, I wasn't tall enough. So I, I mean, I'm nearly six foot, but even now I'd probably only be a point guard. Um, but at the time I was pretty short, and there was like these massive girls that weren't even that good, but obviously they got picked because they were tall. So I never got picked in that. Absolutely devastated. The next one was the soccer. I got all the way to the last round, but then they had this rule where you had to play for a club. And I I didn't play. I just played for my school. And um, so that fizzled out as well. Didn't make it into the soccer. Uh, the rugby, uh, this was selected from a um, school tournament. So we played like these mixed tournaments uh, against other schools and stuff. And the head coach was there and he sort of went around and like hand-selected people to try out. And he picked myself, another girl and another guy from our team. But the problem was my school had a rule that you had to wear those like padded helmet things. And um, so we all ran over to meet this coach who picked us out and um, me and my friend took our helmets off and he's like, oh, you're girls. <laughs> we don't want any girls. <laughs> so that was the end of the rugby career. And then um, and then hockey. I, I went to the hockey trial. I'd never played before, but my school had some goalie gear, so I tried out as a goalie and a field player. Um, and they picked me as a goalie, and so that was it. That was that was the start of my hockey career. And funnily enough, um, Colin Reardon, who some people would know, he's um, one of the um, well, he's part of the furniture down at Greensboro. He was there because Steph, his daughter, was trialing as well, and. Um, I don't even know how it happened, but he went up and introduced himself to mum and asked asked about me. And at the time, I didn't play or anything. So he said, well, does, does Rach want to join Greensboro? And um, and I did. So played my first ever state team with Steffi Reardon, um, who's still one of, you know, one of my good friends. And I've played majority of my club career and, and also some state stuff with her. And um, Colin, of course, is still kicking along at Greensboro. So, um, yeah, that's that's my hockey story. Well, I'll tell you, Rach, I thought I knew some answers to some of these questions, but I definitely didn't think that now the most capped goalkeeper in Australian history fell into being a goalkeeper on her fourth trial <laughs> in grade six. I mean, that <laughs> that's pretty crazy. I mean, imagine if you had have just made the basketball team. We, we might not be sitting here talking about how good your hockey career is. Well, I mean, I, I will admit if I got the opportunity right now to transfer across to the WNBL, I would absolutely do it. I love basketball so much. And, um, yeah, watch out when I retire, even though I'll probably be 36 or something ridiculous and they'll be like, go away. Um, <laughs> but I do reflect sometimes on um, uh, the two coaches we had for that state team um, who, you know, I've, I've seen a little bit over my career, not any time recently, but you know, they could have picked me as a field player as well. And I, I definitely don't think I'd be in this position. I think the reason I um, I was, you know, a reasonable goalkeeper back then was because I played so many different sports. So I had reasonable hand-eye coordination, but I also didn't really have, have any fear. I was happy to dive and slide because I'd played softball and baseball and um, I was actually a catcher at, at softball and baseball. So again, using my hands. 
But um, I guess that was sort of what they saw in me. And even now when um, when I'm at training or at the gym watching the girls do their yo-yo or their beak test, I'm just like, thank you for picking me as a goalie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably fair enough. Even when I'm watching the boys at Camwell do fitness stuff and I have to do it, I am not particularly thrilled <laughs> at the concept. So, um, yeah, not a bad, not a bad trade-off, although I don't, think I would like standing in the goal when people are running in and trying to hit it at you because I've uh, I said to Jim my housemate a few times that I know how hard I try and hit the ball at the goals and I wouldn't <laughs> like to be on the other end of that um, and you face it coming a lot harder than what I can do but um, I mean when you started in the in the state team or the VPSSA team and, and made it as a goalie it's always a question I'm interested in were you just a gun straight away or did you have to grow into it? Uh, I mean, I can't remember. Like back then it's more just what your parents tell you or what people tell you. And I, I guess at that trial they saw something in me, um, which is why I got picked. But then I didn't get picked in anything until under 16. So, um, yeah, a lot of kids sort of asked me about, about my journey and it's like, oh, well, I missed out on this team, so how am I ever going to play for Australia? And it's like, you know, every single one of us follows a different path. And, yeah, from under 12 to under 16, I made nothing. Like I tried out for the under 14s, I think two, maybe three times and just didn't get selected. So it's not like I was just this goalkeeping god from age 12, absolutely not. Um, and 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 then you can look at my career later on. Um, for sure, from 16s, I made the 18s, 21s and um, Victoria and then on to play for Australia. So that was a little bit smoother. But then I'm... I'm now 14 years into the Australian team and the only games we played at the start of this year, I couldn't even get a full game. They were still sitting me on the bench. I got announced as international goalkeeper of the year and they were playing me for half a game. So there is absolutely no um, sort of clear path for any athlete, I'd say. There's there's a few um, freak athletes for sure that have had a a reasonably successful career. And, you know, I think about... um, Someone like Madonna Blythe, who um, had a, had an amazing career playing for the Hockey Roos, rarely missed a game, almost never, and that was injuries because she looked after her body, but also non-selection. She got picked in everything, um, and, and that's credit to her. Uh, Rachel Imerson, another one who was my idol growing up, she um, – actually, she was Camberwell, wasn't she? I, can't, I feel like she might have been. Anyway, <laughs> Um, I mean, she hasn't been in Melbourne for a long time, but uh, she was 10 years in the Australian team as as the number one pretty much the whole time. And um, it, it is so rare in sport and especially in hockey, but I, I have no regrets. You know, I um, as much as I love to be playing full games for Australia, that's where all the learning comes in. I hope that's sort of where I've built my resilience and uh, my patience and, and the skills that help me to be a better person and help me get through challenges, you know, like COVID and different things because of those little setbacks that I've had and that most most athletes will have at some point. Yeah, and I was going to ask, obviously, I think not following the perceived linear progression, right, from you playing around the 13s and then the 15s and 17s and all the way through, but I guess for you there would have come a moment where you thought, I can, this could be my career, um, at some point that must have come across your mind to go, okay, I'm going to be a hockey player. What point did that happen? And when did you think, yeah, I can, I can actually make it? Um, I, I actually don't know. Um, it's funny the things that stand out to you because I remember 
uh, one of my first Aussie tours. So not not for the hockey roos, a junior. It was like an underage. And I went on a few, but there's only a few things I can remember. Um, so Kari Chow did a lot of the junior Aussie stuff with me. Um, I remember the day we were in New Zealand, I think it was, and we walked into a Travelex, you know, the old places where you get your money exchange. Yep. And we're about to go onwards overseas. It was before the Junior World Cup. So we had New Zealand, I think we were going to China, and then the Junior World Cup was in South America and Chile. And we went into this Travelex, and I'm pretty sure we just asked them for those um, passport wallet things. We just wanted one. <laughs> so they gave us both a free passport wallet. And, um, you know, we then went on and, and did a bit of international travel, and we had these passport wallets. Um, so stupidly enough, that's one thing I remember. The other thing I remember, um, again, I think it was in New Zealand. My mum and dad flew over, flew over to watch, and pretty sure it was under 18s. And we played a game, and after the game, mum and dad were there, and we got off the pitch, and we were leaving, and all the team were leaving, and I was there with the girls, and mum obviously wanted to talk to me, and I was like, oh, bye, and just left. And um, I'm clearly still traumatised by this, but we obviously then had an argument over the phone because I think I was, you know, still trying to find my way and who am I and all of those sorts of things and was like a bit embarrassed that my parents were there and the team were leaving so I had to leave and just didn't give mum and dad that time and they'd flown all this way and, you know, they've supported me my whole my whole career, like the amount of hours mum spent in the State Hockey Centre car park sleeping in the car while I was training because she, you know, had to do that run. My dad's lived overseas for since I was 12, so mum looked after every aspect of my training and, and, you know, drove me everywhere without a second thought. They paid for me to go on state trips. And in that moment, I'm just like, I look back and I'm just so embarrassed that, um, you know, I didn't show that sort of care back to mum and dad who had come all this way to support me. And obviously we worked through it and um, I'm now fortunate that, Mum and Dad have, have seen me play. They came to Rio um, and my brother. Um, they came to Rio. They've been to the Commonwealth Games um, in Glasgow. They came to the World Cup in South America and um, have been able to see some really big events. And I, and I, and I love that they've come along to that. But, um, yeah, I sort of look back on that moment. And I'm just like, damn it, you know, after everything they did for me on my first Aussie tournament, I just let them down. And um, I think it just shows that sometimes we forget the amount of support our parents give us and the sacrifice and all of those things they do to help us get to the top level. And um, it's certainly something I think about now that it would be easy for me to walk away. You know, I've got a great job now. I suppose I've, I've reached all the things I've wanted to achieve in my career. But the thought of being able to go to Tokyo um, or beyond maybe and have mum there, my dad, my brother, my little nephew now, and my sister-in-law. Um, I know how much of a part they've played in the journey, and I and I also want them to be able to share that experience too. Yeah, well, I'm really glad you, that was sort of one of your answers there, actually, because something that I like, I've kind of obviously through my job have been lucky enough to watch uh, the hockey roos and the kookaburras a little bit over the last four or five years, um, and one of the one of the staple audience members that. I often see is is your mum sitting in the grandstand. So I think <laughs> being able to have that level of support and she sort of always seems to be there um, is is unreal. She loves and it. By the looks of it, she's probably forgiven you for snubbing her when you were 17 <laughs> because you've probably paid it back a few times over since then. But, um, 
Yeah, I think that, I mean, when you do get to go to watch these sorts of events, you do see how many family members are in the crowd and they always tend to sit together, which is pretty cool. And, and I think that part of it must have played such a big role um, in everybody, all yourself and all your teammates, having a supportive family must be such an important contribution. Oh, it is. And I think when we go away as well, like I um, I had another tournament early on, one of my first well, probably a couple of tournaments playing for Australia where we played in Sydney. So I was pretty young, new to the team, playing alongside Ray Chimerson. And um, Sydney, I've got a lot of family there. So we flew to Sydney. It was a Champions Trophy, so two-week tournament. Um, Mum, Dad, my brother, auntie, uncle, all my cousins, everyone came. And, you know, they didn't come to every game, but they were there for most of the games. First few games, didn't get a run. You know, I was the younger keeper, all of this. Kept going. Then we got to a game that didn't really matter, and I was like, okay, now's my chance. Didn't get picked. Ended up going the whole two-week tournament, and I didn't step onto the pitch for a single minute. And I had my family there every day. And obviously I can cop the disappointment of not being selected. Like, that's just part of it. But the guilt I felt that my family had spent all this money, they'd travelled, they'd committed, they'd come out to all of these games and didn't even get, like they were there obviously to support, but they were there to see me. Like that's why they're there. Um, You know, my dad had flown from overseas, mum from Melbourne, all of this. And it's like, you can't say anything. Like I can't say to the coach, can I play? Because my family have spent like five grand getting here. Like it's not a thing, but eventually it got to a point where they they didn't come because they didn't know if I was going to play so that my family didn't see me play until I'd played over 50 games for Australia because they never knew if I was going to be there so um, it's probably a bit nicer for them now that they can lock in a tournament and know that hopefully I'm going to be there (laughs) Um, but we've you know we've worked through that and I think um, it it changes the dynamic a little bit you know like my um, my nan she's another big supporter of mine and and always comes to watch but she's um you know getting getting a bit older and the travel's quite hard for her she has to have oxygen on the plane and things like that so um it was really nice this year even though the thought of my last game for Australia against Argentina uh where we lost at least I I flew mum and nan over and uh, I know that my nan got to see me play one more time for Australia and um they're the sort of things that are actually really special and, and memorable for all of us us athletes yeah and that is amazing and all those stories are so good and I think it adds such a human element to what people think is, you know, just everyone's so intent on the game but there is so much that goes on behind the scenes um, and every player probably has similar stories when they're starting out, albeit it would be unlikely for a player to be at a tournament and not get on the field for two weeks if they're uh, not a <laughs> yeah. goalkeeper, unfortunately. <laughs> probably just your, lot, so your lot in life on that one, yeah. <laughs> It's pretty unfortunate. Yeah. Now, I want you to I want you to rewind right back, Lynchy. Um, for those of us who are not going anywhere with our hockey careers beyond just the enjoyment of getting out on a Saturday, you played yep. at a Junior World Cup, and then you were in the senior squad in two thousand and six. I think you debuted. Um, what's What's that experience like? How do you find out you're going to play, and then like? How do you go calling your mum who's been sleeping in the car at the State Hockey Centre for all those years and say, <laughs> like, mum, like, this is actually happening now? It was, um, again, actually thinking back, quite a traumatic experience the way that all played out because um, in 06 I played for Northern Territory in the AHL 
um, had played a couple of years for Victoria, but Ray Chimerson was the goalie for Vic. So spent those two years learning from her, getting, you know, a few minutes here and there and absolutely loved it. But then it got to a point where uh, my coach knew that I needed to be getting more minutes. Uh, so I, I played for Northern Territory, had an absolute ball with them. I loved it, but we got smashed every game, uh, which for a goalie is a good thing because you get lots of work and um, at the time more exposure. So uh, that was good. But after the tournament, the national squad was selected and I wasn't in it. So some people sort of said, oh, that's, you know, rubbish. You, sh- you played well, should have got in. Um, but it is what it is. And then I don't know how long after it was, I um, it was leading into the June-July holidays. So I was at uni at the time. So, had you know, you get that two months or whatever it is, ridiculous break. Um, and I got this phone call from Frank Murray, the head coach. And uh, he rang me and he said, oh, do you know your um, – do you know your – going to debut for Australia. And I was like, no, how would I know that? Um, back then we didn't have social media and um, gossip channels like we do now. But anyway, so he told me that. He's like, yep, we need you over in um, in the UK in two weeks and you're going to make your debut at the Champions Trophy in Holland. So hung up the phone and I burst into tears. Like naturally you'd think happiest day of my life. No, no. I had so many plans for those holidays. <laughs> so I'd um, been training with the under-21s and, you know, I'm such a proud Victorian and some of my best mates in that team, you know, Stack, Brooksy, Soxy, Messi, all of that crew. Um, so I'd been training with them and I wasn't going to go. Uh, we'd had a big build-up and it, it meant I wouldn't get to go. Um, I had uh, my birthday coming up, another friend's 21st that I was speaking at, um, and my other good mate, her and I were going to Thailand for two weeks. So I was just like, oh, this is a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> um, and don't get me wrong, absolutely stoked that I was going to make my debut. But I had to have some really challenging conversations with a few people because, you know, all my mates support me, of course. I've got wonderful friends and family. But in that moment, I had to tell them that for me to go and fulfill my dream and, and something that I've been working towards, I had to let them down. Like I had to let the girls down that I'd trained with for months. I had to let my mate down who we'd spent a lot of money on this holiday and she was looking forward to it as was I and we had to cancel it. So those sort of things, you know, it was probably the beginning of, of many of those conversations that I've had to have throughout my career where you're choosing to pursue something yourself that um, you have this deep desire for but in the meantime have to try and um, – you know, you end up missing out on a lot of things. So it's, um, I mean, yeah, look, no regrets, but it's, it's, it's certainly been a journey and there's been lots of things along the way that I've, I've missed out on, which you choose to do, but, um, you know, I've got some really great friends and family that have allowed me to do that and still supported me to do that. Yeah. Wow. That is a different story to what I thought it might be like I thought I was going to get like oh, the best day of my life. They called me up. I was so happy. Fairy tale. Uh, no, yeah, lots going on. Um, so I suppose like that all just feeds back into that balance conversation, really, doesn't it? And of being able to juggle your hockey life and then your life outside of hockey. When did you move across to Perth? And then did that sort of sway a lot of your decisions back towards well, hockey's sort of number one now um and when were you when did you become a more permanent fixture in the team to be able to plan in advance because I imagine at the start it was a little bit trickier 
uh, to plan everything around, like, am I going, am I not going? Uh, I don't know exactly when that was, but um, I, even still, I don't know. Like, now, um, you never know. Like, coaches do weird things. They do crazy things. <laughs> That's why I'm not a coach. <laughs> um, they like to play They like to play with your mind. And I think the um, probably one of the biggest learnings I've had from my sport is the most valuable thing that a coach can give a player is their belief in them. This is probably a bit controversial, but I've, I've not felt that throughout my career. I've felt that I've had to prove myself all the time um, and there's always been the games of, you know, we're going to sit you out just to keep you on your toes and all of that sort of stuff and it is what it is. Like I've just... I've copped it and I guess there's been occasions where I've been knocked to the ground by decisions which I didn't agree with but then I've stepped up and performed and then that sort of in my head it's like, well, I'm doing it because, you know, I believe I'm good enough and I want to help us win and all of those sort of reasons but then I wonder if the coach goes, yes, see, that worked, what I did there worked as in we need to keep not selecting us for her to play well and just play her half games because she doesn't like it and she'll step up and all of that sort of stuff. And I've tried my whole career to just be like, if you want me to play well, just believe in me. That's all you got to do. Give me time. Give me minutes. You know, I've been given full tournaments occasionally, the Olympics, Com Games, and they've been my best tournaments. It's like, well, doesn't that say something to you? Like, um, but then I've also had, um, you know, um, Stack Strain or Stacey Joseph. She's one of my best um, best friends and also been a wonderful mentor for me and, um she told me really early on that you, you have to have that belief in yourself because you, you can't you can't use coaches to get that because they won't they won't give it to you um, and if you um, I suppose are always seeking that out it's um it's going to make it really hard and I sort of yeah really had to learn to just find that inner belief in myself um, in order to play well because you it's going to be a roller coaster no matter what and um, I think that um, constant search for reassurance from them just makes it a, a, a such a mind game. So um, I've spent many years working on that. And to go back to your question, uh, where, when did I actually know that I was going? I always planned like I was going because that was the only way I could manage my life. I had to tell my boss that I was going on every tournament for the whole year so she'd roster me off. And then if I didn't get picked no worries pick up some extra shifts so um but then also even for the olympics my first um olympics in rio uh i spent the whole year working on that belief in myself um i worked with someone to put together a bit of a, a list that i had and they were, i guess positive affirmations that i read to myself first thing as soon as i woke up and last thing at night um but still in that moment when the email came through um from the team from our coach with the list I've never felt more nervous or more sick or more uncomfortable in my whole life than that 30 second experience opening that email and um, you know thankfully my name was on there but it just shows the the mind games involved in in selection and elite sport yeah that that's crazy and I think particularly that that moment particularly you'd gone through it twice before and I don't know what the process was but I imagine you Saw the email come through and Still thought, email. oh, God, I've been here twice before and I've read the list and no R. Lynch on, on the team sheet. 
I mean, again, this is an experience that people like myself just can't really understand completely because it's such a big life event, really, becoming an Olympian. Um, I hope this is a slightly happier story than the debut story, but when you did read <laughs> it, when you did read it and you saw your name on the list, what, what does that feel like and what does that mean to kind of reach the goal, I guess? Um, I mean, the, the, the pure emotion in that was, was relief. Uh, I, I always, despite missing out twice, um, my goal was never to get picked for the Olympics. My goal was to win a gold medal. Um, so that was only part of the journey and um, it's probably the biggest challenge I'd say in a team sport is how do you manage those people who are just really happy and content to get picked. Um, so, but as you said, because I missed out twice, um, it had been like such a long journey. It's like 10 years it took me to go to the Olympics and people always are like, they found out I was a hockey roo. It's like, oh, you've been to the Olympics? It's like, no, but I've, <laughs> I've done some other cool things. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, re- I remember the moment vividly. It was actually my birthday. So we went out for breakfast. Uh, my mum, my boyfriend at the time, Banjo, and um, went for brekkie. Then there was like, we knew exactly when the email was coming. So we just sort of went for a wander in the shops, went into this gift shop. And, um, you know, mum, you know, was, was very kind and said, oh, I'm going to go to the bathroom. So removed herself so that it could just be me and Ben. And um, we were just wandering around the store, Ben and I, pretending like it wasn't about to happen. And, yeah, I just went over into the corner. I'd probably refreshed my phone email um, at least 80 times because um, of class- classic. It didn't come through. I think it was 11 yeah. o'clock. It didn't come through at 11. It was probably 11.02. Yeah. And refreshed the email. Um, like my heart is actually racing while I tell you the story. But my heart was going so fast and you know, shivers all over my body, opened the email, checked the list, saw Lynch. Like, it's alphabetical order. You, you don't read a single other name. You just scan. I know exactly I'm usually in the middle, exactly the spot on the list, saw Lynch, uh, and it just burst into tears. And, um, you know, Ben came over and gave me a hug. The poor lady working in the store was like, <laughs> what's going on? And then went out and, you know, mum's sort of just standing around the corner. She saw me and she saw I was crying and, of course, was like, I don't know, that could be either thing. <laughs> so I ran over and hugged her and um, and then, of course, you know, it's embargoed, so you're not allowed to tell anyone, but um, ha, I told a few people. <laughs> <laughs> I rang I rang my mates, um, Stack and Brooksy and Chow, and I think um, Dooch was there as well. They were all out for brekkie, and I was just so happy to tell them, and, you know, they kept it a secret. But it was, um, it was a pretty cool moment. It's also nice it was on my birthday, but... Um, Oh, and I remember ringing my brother who, my brother doesn't say a lot, but we're, we're pretty close and he was, um, he was just so happy for me. And you can see that they don't want to put the pressure on and they really want you to be there. Um, and I think that relief came out for him as well because, um, you know, he knew what I'd been through and um, was just, yeah, super happy for me. So a much more memorable moment than the, uh, than the debut phone call. Yeah, that is, that's a serious story and, like you said, your heart was racing. Like my heart's racing listening to you tell the story, <laughs> even though I knew the result of the story. Like I think that's, that, that's the beauty of sport, that it, it's such an emotional game. Um, and I yeah. obviously knew the watching, watching from the position I was in, both from just a hockey fan but then working in the business side of it, um, it's always so exciting. And, and I know that for all the athletes who have made it previously and, and will make it, 
since uh, in the future. Like it's such a huge moment, um, and obviously, hopefully you, you'll you'll you have guys another ride moment the wave like as that. well, though. Oh, big time! Yeah, I I was gonna say I I mean that tournament possibly didn't go exactly how well you want to win a gold medal, and obviously didn't quite achieve that. And um, but personally, for you, it was a pretty good tournament, and there's obviously like a fairly pinnacle moment in all of that that most people remember and that wicked photo of you saving the the penalty stroke I think against Argentina um how does the how does your Olympic experience and it's not over yet because Tokyo 2021 now um is just on the horizon again but like how does how does that experience of being an Olympian the first time around how does that sit with you now because I imagine it's been a little bit of a roller coaster even in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, I'm super grateful that I got to have that experience. Um, I'm also really grateful I did it at an older age because I think I, I was able to handle the pressures much better. The experience itself, you know, really wanting to immerse yourself in the Olympics and, and all that comes along with that, but still being able to keep a level head and, and good perspective, which I think I, I did that pretty well. Um, and, you know, I went to the Olympics as one of the senior players, even though I'd never been before. Um there's a couple of key things for me. Uh, I remember, I mean, we lost a few games early on, um, but I can remember really clearly that after each game, we'd go in, have a quick chat, do our ice bath, and then go out and see our family. And um, it was really obvious to me that despite the disappointment of, of what was happening for us, there's all our family having an absolute ball and just so proud of us no matter what. Um, so that was that was nice to be able to go out and get a hug from you know, um, my family and, and Benjo who was there and um, see all the other families who just, just were happy for you that you were there and enjoying it. Um, so there was that. Um, the day I saved a stroke, funnily enough, was was a pretty crazy day. Um, I had um, went to put my gear on after I'd warmed up and um, my smock had been stolen. So someone had gotten into the room and taken both of my smocks. So I rushed out and we had a spare one luckily. So I wore that for the game. Um Played the game and then yeah saved the stroke, which was which was pretty cool. I remember running off the pitch and everyone was cheering my name, chanting my name, and then I got back into the to the goalie room and they'd stolen all my clothes. So <laughs> had no no shorts, no singlet. Thank God my um my fancy Garmin watch, which is my absolute baby, I'd hidden it in my shoe, so they didn't steal <laughs> my watch, which would have been way more valuable than the uniform. But all they wanted was our uniform, so yeah, um, it was. Pretty memorable day. Um, and then lastly, from the Olympics, uh, I'll never forget. So the, it was in, the Olympics was really a disaster for us, for finishing um, a week early, losing the quarterfinal to New Zealand. A whole lot of stuff went down with our coaches, uh, which was not particularly memorable. But after all of that, um, came back super disappointed. I remember landing in Sydney, got off the plane. Uh, I was connecting on a connecting flight, I think, to Melbourne or Perth, can't remember. I walked through the airport by myself full kit so I had my full Aussie uniform on and no joke I reckon six different people randoms came up to me and just said how proud they were they're just like we're so proud of you thank you for everything they did and they had no idea who I was or what sport I did um one of them was one of the security guys that do the put your bag through the machine he literally stopped what he was doing and ran over and he just said I just want to let you know how proud I am and it's like that that's what it's about but yeah, we came six, but people don't care. Australians are so passionate about sport and they were just happy for us. So that sort of summed up my Olympic experience, I think. Oh, big time. And I think, well, obviously my hockey 
per, like the fact that I love hockey, but also working in hockey, like it was always that as a business and as people that work for it, we just love riding the wave with you guys. And, um, you know, when you go well, it's so fantastic. And then when you don't go so well, it's hard on everyone too, because we just want to see you guys go sure. as well as possible. And looking very much looking forward to Tokyo 2021, where the hockey roos just get back on that top step of the podium. But, um, I suppose, <laughs> I guess, you know, I look at that penalty strike in as, as an example, but since then, you've now, I think, developed a reputation um, as a goalkeeper that really tends to stand up when the heat is on. Um, and there's been a lot of shootouts, weirdly enough, that I've watched um, that you go into, and you've been pretty successful. Is that a mindset from your end? I'm sure it is, but do you also do research on opposition players or how do you prepare for when it comes down to the moment where it's you versus them and you have to win? Uh, the, yeah, the pressure for me is, is the best part. Like I, I love the pressure. Um, I really look forward to it. Uh, I'll never forget I played in a club final in Melbourne one year, many, many years ago because I haven't done that for a long time. And Sue McGill, who was one of my coaches, she's famous at Essendon Hockey Club, she walked behind the net. And she yelled out to me. She said, "Put on a show, Lynchy." And um, I, I'm not I'm not one who tries to be very um, um, emotional or vocal or any of those things. When I went, like even in the shootouts, I would never show any emotion until we win. Like I won't celebrate any of my saves ever. That's just something that I just like to do. Just keep it really low key. Just get in there, do your job, and then you celebrate when you win. That's the only time. Um, so I would say I'm not a very showy keeper. But I do think back to that moment from from Sue where it was just like she was right behind me. She felt that, you know, she she put that belief in me and, and knew that I could do a good job. And sometimes I think back to that moment. Um, but, yeah, the pressure, absolutely love that part of it. I want the girls to relax knowing that um, I, I'm going to do my job so they can sort of clear their head and take a bit of pressure off themselves. Um, but to answer your question about the research, yeah, 100%. I do a lot of research. Any game that could go to shootouts, I'll have a list. Um, I put it in my phone and I send it to our physio who's on the bench so I can have a quick look at, over it on their phone after the game. I put the, the five or four that I think will take one, and usually you can pick it. At key tournaments, it'll obviously be their best four. Um, and then out of that, I usually try and remember a couple of key things. But at the end of the day, I just watch the ball. That is all I do is just watch the ball and have a – fierce desire to not let it go in the goal that's my that's my secret everyone i've just given it away <laughs> yeah it seems for all the success uh not letting the ball go in the goal seems to be a fairly good <laughs> starting point for any goalkeeper i i would imagine um now since you've you've been super generous with your time i've just got a couple more questions the first one or the last one really to finish off on is i suppose what advice would you give a young goalkeeper, so whether they be 8 or 10 or 12 or 15, who either want to play for the Hockey Roos or the Kookaburras one day, or maybe they just want to play as high as they can achieve. Like, what would you, if you had to give them one bit of advice now, what would that be? Uh, I'd, I'd give them plenty, but the main one I think is, and someone, I don't remember who told me this many years ago, but you need to be a sponge. So soak in every single bit of information. Like you'll get so much advice from different people throughout your career, coaches, fans, teammates, all of that. Soak it all in, listen to everyone, but then you have to squeeze out the bits that you don't, 
you don't want that don't apply to you um, because everyone's different. Everyone follows a different journey. Um, no one is ever going to play for Australia as a goalkeeper the same as me because I don't play the same as anyone else. So it's going to be your, your own journey. So soak it all in, um, but then find what works for you. Yeah, very, very good advice, I reckon. Um, and along your roller coaster that's gone up and down, and we've obviously visited quite a few of those spots over the last hour, what, what has been the highlight to now? Clearly the highlight will be in 12 months or so when you're in Tokyo, but to this point, what, what's been the highlight of your hockey journey? Uh, I th- there's been a couple of really memorable moments, as you said, a few that I've shared. One will, will forever be um, the most memorable moment for me where uh, the Com Games final in Glasgow, we're losing 1-0 to England or GB, we scored a goal off a PC with 14 seconds to go to equalise, um, which meant we then went on to, well, we did go on to win in shootouts. But that one moment, funnily enough, the most memorable for me, I had no involvement in. <laughs> so it wasn't a save I made, anything like that. It was standing up the other end of the pitch, watching the girls who had busted their bums for the last hour trying to score and pepper this goal. And we scored with 14 seconds to go and we ripped that gold medal out of England's hand. And then, um, you know, that then gave me the opportunity to contribute and go and help with the shootouts. But I watch that video regularly because the emotion I feel and the joy and the happiness. And, of course, I had my family there. But it was with, you know, the girls I played majority of my career with. And um, I absolutely love that moment and thinking about it. Well, Rach, um, people would have known that you were a superstar keeper before the podcast. Hopefully, they will now know that you're a superstar person too. And before we finish... (laughs) At the Campbell Hockey Podcast, it would be remiss of me not to just say to you when you do finish up in Perth and with the hockey ruse, don't don't draw a line through coming back and joining Campbell maybe in Melbourne and reuniting <laughs> with a few mates and you know, we've got a nice new clubhouse now and I can't recommend it highly enough. But um thanks so much for your time and yeah, hope I'm sure everyone got something out of it. Thanks, Tom. Absolute pleasure and I think for me um, you know, really proud of Victoria and our club hockey community because I think we all stick together and I know everyone's going through a tough time. So more than happy to support Camberwell. Um, my heart will remain with Greensboro, but um, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you, Tom. You've been listening to the Camberwell Hockey Podcast. We'd like to send a big thank you to our hosting team, our guests, and you, the listener, for your support. If you enjoy the show, please give us a review on iTunes wherever you get your podcasts. This show is recorded and produced by Camberwell Hockey Club in Melbourne, Australia. If you have any feedback, comments or questions, please find us on Twitter at Camberwell underscore HC or see more information on our website, camberwell.hockey. See you next week.